0: the next 9 verses in mark it's so good isn't it i've been enjoying it i love to see the lord i don't think it ever gets tiring to see jesus and i think we need all four gospels to p- complete that story and even the revelation from from paul to see the beauty of jesus he is beautiful he really is. He's better than your sin. You don't note it. You don't notice that. In the moment, that's why you give in to temptation, right? It's why you give in to it, as the reformer said, that you give in to temptation because ultimately you love your sin more than obedience. And although that's hard to hear, that's true, isn't it? Every time, and you just think, every time you've given in to some sort of immorality, in the moment, you're ultimately saying that the temptation is greater than the power to get out of it. But there is good news this morning. The good news is that we are all called to respond to his call on our lives. And again, Mark is making this argument, and he's saying, look, He can call you. He can make a disciple out of you. Because he has first demonstrated his power over Satan and sin. And that's where we're going this morning. This is important. Last week we talked about, or two weeks ago we talked about, that the king is here. The king is here. 700 years ago, or before... Jesus came, which is 2,700 years ago, which you think about that, 2,700 years ago, someone spoke words that actually made a difference for all of eternity, and he said that there would be a forerunner that would come, and this forerunner would come, and he would herald this king, and Jesus made it that, or God uh, in his providence made it that it would be in Rome at this time, that the Romans would hear this and think of Caesar Augustus and say, oh, I know about a king. I know how this works. I know that there are people that prepare the way. And that preparing of the way means that this king is coming to bring peace and rule in that city. And Mark is saying, it's not Caesar. It's the Son of God. And you know, you can't just say that. You can't just say that even necessarily even on the streets, although you believe that, that this is the Son of God. Well, I don't know if it's the Son of God. No, no, it's the Son of God. And Mark says, look, it's the Son of God for these reasons. And now we see, for one, Mark uh, shows us that how humble John the Baptist was. He doesn't start with the birth of Jesus, but he starts with, Basically, the baptism of Jesus, and that baptism is extremely important, as John says, i got to get out of the way because there's someone who's greater and i'm even I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal of his shoe and then not only did we have to see the baptism of Jesus, which we talked about only discussed three verses last week and realize how important that was for the hearers of the Romans, for the hearers of the Jews to actually see that that baptism was important because Jesus actually had to fulfill all righteousness. And I'm praying that this morning that our eyes would be open to see the beauty of Jesus, to see how amazing he really is. That's going to transform our lives. We could talk about felt needs this morning, or we could talk about Jesus. And I'd much rather talk about the Lord this morning because there are hundreds of implications of his baptism, of his temptation. So many, I'd take forever just to go through them all. But Mark, in a profound way, leaves a lot of details out in the first chapter. Right out of the gate, says, this king is coming, John the Baptist says he's coming. Oh, but now he's here. He's here now. And I'm going to baptize him, even though I don't want to. But Jesus says to fulfill all righteousness so that that 2 Corinthians 5, 21 verse would be absolutely true, that he would become sin. He would identify with sinners so that there would be this great substitutionary atonement so that he could take your place. So the righteous one... Can take the sinner 's place so that the sinner 's place so that the sinner can take the righteous place that 's incredible, but he doesn 't just get to do that or say that he has to demonstrate that, and he 's demonstrating that first through the baptism and now through the temptation of of Jesus by his archenemy Satan himself, and not only that, but that shows us that he can conquer sin. And if he can conquer sin, then he can conquer sin in our own lives and save us. And then he has full authority to call us, every single one of you, to a discipleship relationship. And when he says, come follow me, it needs to be the exact same response as the disciples. Drop everything and follow him. And we're going to demonstrate why that is so important and why he is able to even make such a claim that sounded so, it sounds so familiar to us, but yet so foreign to the readers. Now, just a little note on the Bible study note. Again, I'm trying to help you understand how important it is to, to look at what is called the authorial intent. And why that is so important, because Mark is doing something radically different than other gospel writers even. Right out the gate, he's not giving details, although we're going to look at some of the other gospels today to see, to fill in some of the gaps. But I want you to see that he has one purpose this morning, and that is to show you that Jesus has full authority. Full authority. Like when you go to a restaurant and you tell the waitress to follow Jesus, he has given you that kind of authority you actually have a right to go to anybody after church and say, follow the Lord. You have authority to do that. That's amazing to me. Like by God, has a, you have authority to do that. And there's only, there is a reason why you're able to do that. So turn with me to Mark chapter one and verse 12. So we'll look at nine, nine verses. Mark chapter one, verse twelve says, Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, I just want to say that if you're taking notes this morning, just to follow along pretty simply, number one, Jesus has full authority over his archenemy, Satan, the devil, the adversary. Number two, he has authority over sin's power. And number three, he has authority to call you. To call you. And so the first thing I want you to notice with immediately, which I thought was pretty incredible, that the spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Satan. In other words, it, it's just the Greek word is ekbalo, it's a forceful thrusting into temptation. So he goes, literally, there's a massive contrast happening right now. Just think, think back last week, he's getting out of the water, he's praying, and the, the heavens are torn open, right? The heavens are rended, they're torn open, they're torn like the, the, the curtain that was torn into is the same word, it was a powerful experience, and two things happened, you Remember? He had the father's affirmation, said, this is my son. He is the son of God, my only son. And I'm well pleased with him. And in other places, it says that you need to listen to him and him alone. The second thing that happened was that the spirit descended on him. You see the Trinity there. There was absolute affirmation on Jesus. It It's almost like all of scripture is pointing to that moment in history. Saying that, look at my son. This is the one I want you to listen to. He's important. He's way more important than John. Way more important than the prophets. Way more important than King David. Way more important than Abraham, Moses. This man is the son of God. And God said, I don't know what else to to do to show you this. I'm making it very clear to everybody that this is. The one we've all been waiting for. And then, after that coronation of this amazing king, he is thrusted by the Spirit. And by the way, it is not against his will. Can I just say that temptation is not against God's will? It is a part of his will for you to go into temptation to be tested. And by the way, also, God doesn't tempt anyone. The enemy does. In fact, James says that in uh, chapter one, verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Tempted means to put to the test. So there's a positive aspect to that and there's a negative. Jesus experienced the negative aspect and the only way to tell between a positive and negative temptation or a test, that's all that, that word means, means the test, is if Satan is behind it. If Satan is behind it and he's tempting you to do something that is outside the bounds of God's will that is called sinful temptation. He's trying to get you to go against God. To blaspheme God. To make him look bad. To worship Satan. But really what is happening too, you also notice that he, he will make you go through trials to form you into the image of God. In this case, this was absolutely a part of God's will because he needed to demonstrate his victory over Satan. And if he didn't, that would be very bad news for all of us in this room. Very bad news. We're not into that, are we? So, would Jesus pass the test? I mean, you have to get into the the mind of the hearers. Understand, so when, you can do, when you can do that, you're going to come out the other end understanding what Jesus has come to do. And understanding what the writer, what his intent, with his purpose, what he's actually trying to do. When you read the Bible, you read it that way. I want to understand, okay, as they were, were they on the edge of their seats? Wondering, see, we have all the information now. We're so familiarized with this. We know the end, right? We know Jesus wins. But watch what Mark uniquely is doing here. It's sort of suspenseful in a way. Wait, you're making a big deal for this king to come? You're playing the trumpets? I mean, this guy is coming in. He's going into the waters of baptism. He's coming out. Father's affirming him. The Spirit's affirming him. And then you mean to tell me he's being whisked off into some wilderness to be tempted by Satan? What's going to happen now? And this is the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. How is this going to end? Now we have this promise, Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. This is right after Adam and Eve fall into sin. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, what does that mean? Jesus is one day going to crush Satan. God in the garden had two purposes. To judge mankind, to let the consequences of sin play out, which we all experience all the time. Anytime somebody physically dies, they're experiencing that curse. But also, one day he would judge Satan. And now that time has arrived, or the beginning of that time has arrived. And so, in 1 John 3 eight, what did he come? He said, he who practiced the sin of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God, listen, appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And how will he do that? And we're going to see here in a moment how he does that. But first, I wanna just say that why did Jesus have to go into the wilderness? Why did he have to go into this place? Why did God kind of map out, if you will, this very specific temptation, especially after such a glorious coronation of a king? He goes from the highest of highs now to the lowest of lows. He goes to the mountaintop to the valley and, and just, he probably didn't even blink. And the Spirit is thrusting him out now to be tested in the wilderness. And the wilderness is not just, I mean, you might be thinking, well, it wasn't John the Baptist in the desert? I mean, he was right there and he got coordinated and then boom, he go And This is a little further. Some say it's, you know, it's near the limestone area of Jericho. It's very jaggedy. Uh, it's very rough terrain. Also, it says here, uh, that he was with the wild beasts. So you got so you got to fill in the stories here. And if, you, if you're taking notes, maybe just in the margins of your Bible, you could put Luke chapter four verse one. You could put Mark chapter four verse one, and it fills in the gaps. Now I want to do that very carefully because I don't want you to miss what Mark's trying to doing. Trying to do. Does that make sense? Because it could take away from it to a degree. But just for a moment, I want you to—I want to fill in some of these gaps to help you understand what was going on in that period of time at his temptation. Luke four one says, "Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and was led around by the Spirit into the wilderness." And then uh, Matthew four one says this: "Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil." And so, it's about a thirty-five width by a fifteen length of this area is very it was deserted. There was no people. There were just wild beasts. Now I think it's really interesting that this is entirely different than the garden scene. At the first temptation, the first Adam had a beautiful lush garden. Beautiful animals. They weren't evil. You could pet a snake. I mean, I suppose you could pet a... Uh, well, they had legs at the time. I suppose they were lizards. But you could, you pet the most dangerous animal you can possibly think of in your mind. And so it was a wonderful place. That's where the first Adam was tempted. And it's interesting that the second Adam, which is called Jesus, right? Paul makes that argument in Romans. The first, or in Galatians, the first Adam was Adam. The second Adam was Jesus. He's tempted in the desert, Just think about that for a second. He felt the curse. He felt that curse. And that's important because even later on, Paul says that the cursed is the one who hangs on the tree. Now, did Jesus do anything to deserve that curse? No. He didn't. But he felt that curse. Not only did he feel the curse, but he felt the, the isolation by himself for 40 days without food. Like no Facebook. No hangouts. No Google Chats. No FaceTime. Nothing. Zero. But wild animals which included snakes and wild boars. Uh some others foxes, scorpions. That would have been enough. Scorpions would have been absolutely enough for me. Leopards. Are, yeah, in, in mountain lions. It just intensifies this temptation. There's nobody around to defend him. Jesus, remember, did not use his powers to just zap things so that he can feel better. I don't like scorpions. That's not the savior we worship, is it? That's not what Philippians 2 says, is it? He had the right to do that. And we'll see here in a moment how Satan tempted him in that way. To do those things, but he was faced with this enemy for six weeks. And if you think that wasn't enough with the wild beasts, with no food, no people to encourage him with, then you got the enemy telling you to do things. And remember, temptation is only temptation if is if you actually want to do those things. How many know that? I mean, if you if you don't have a problem with alcohol. Satan's not going to tempt you there, is he? He knows how you are wired. He knows how you're wired. And there's a wonderful verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that says he won't tempt you beyond what you're able to overcome. And you are able to overcome in his strength, not your own strength. But it's not unbearable. And that is important to know as well that God allows you, if he allowed you to to be in any sort of temptation that would be a sure defeat, that wouldn't be right, would it? But there is victory. And there is victory because of this scene and what happened. Your victory over sin is dependent on what happens next. And it is so important Important. Moses fasted for 40 days. Elijah did. I suppose some commentators even say in Deuteronomy 8 2 that they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And Jesus is redeeming those 40 years by 40 days of temptation, and he's going to come out victorious here. But this is extremely different than what happened in the garden scene. He felt that curse. You know, and it's interesting, he had a similar temptation, what Adam did. What did Satan tell Adam in the garden? Did God really say? Did God really say? What did Jesus hear before he got thrusted into the desert or the wilderness? You are the what? Son of God. Where do you think Satan is going to tempt him? In that place, in that place of what? Identity. You, if you are the son of God, dot, 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 and he does it three times. As far as what we know. It could have been a lot more in the, within those 40 days, but this is what we know. The enemy recognized Jesus as king, he knows you're a child of God. He knows who Jesus really is. There's no doubt, and so he begins to tempt him in that area. So he tests him to to use his sovereign power. Now listen, Satan uses temptation to get him where it really hurts. In in this sense, to to use it against his uh, to to get him to use his sovereign power instead of his humiliation in other words he wants jesus to abandon his humiliation he knows he is going to go to a cross and if he doesn't go to the cross satan is victorious and that's really what is happening here in luke 4 3 to 4 it says this the devil said to him if you are the son of god tell this stone to become bread And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. What was he doing here? He's saying, look, Jesus, you were entitled to turn these stones into bread. No son of God that I know of would ever starve. You deserve to eat, is what Satan is saying. You don't deserve to suffer. Do you remember that coronation? That was glorious. Stay there. Stay there. Just stay there. Don't do anything else. Just comfort yourself. Go back to heaven, and everything's going to be okay. Luke 4, 5-8 to says this. He led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you all this dom- domain and its glory. For it has been handed over to me. And he's right. When, Satan, when, when Adam and Eve fell, that, was, that is what happened. And I will give it to whoever, whoever I wish. You can almost just see this snake tongue just kind of licking his lips as it's coming back in. <laughs> Therefore, if you worship before me, that's all he wants, by the way. Every time Satan tempts you, he's wanting worship. He's wanting worship. And he says, therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You see how Jesus uses the word every single time? And Deuteronomy was the law. What did Satan offer him in this instance? Something that was rightfully already his, wasn't it? He, he he's he's in a moment going to say the kingdom is here and I am the king. So the hearers were like, whoa, whoa, what? Hold on, wait a second. Isn't he the king? Shouldn't he just shouldn't he just be like Caesar and just boom, just say this and this and this, and he just gets whatever he wants? This isn't like that king. He's lowly. Mark's trying to argue he's the he is king, but he's also the suffering servant." Look, Jesus, instead of being beaten and rejected and being all alone like you are, if you just worship me now, you'll have the whole world. We can do this together. We can rule. It sounds so ridiculous, doesn't it? (laughs) Even saying it out loud. But it's amazing when you're in temptation, it doesn't sound ridiculous, does it? And of course, you know, if Jesus would have given in to the snake. He would have lost everything. And then in Luke 4, 9 through 12, he says this. He led him, which is the devil, led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. There are probably large crowds watching, uh, not necessarily him, but doing their normal everyday duty at the temple and said to him if you are the son of god throw yourself down from here for it is written he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against stone notice again even this satan is not hesitant to use the word in the wrong way that's how sneaky he is you need to le- learn how to use the word of God properly. The right interpretation for the right context. And Jesus answered them and said to him, it is, it is said, you shall not, and right back with the word of God, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What was he doing here? Saying, look, Satan is saying, if you thrust yourself down and not choose the route to be beaten, You don't need to be beaten. You don't need to go through that. Don't humble yourself. Just thrust yourself down. It will make an amazing spectacle. People will worship you instantly. It's what you want. It's what you came to do for everyone to worship you, right? Everyone came to worship you. You are worthy of worship, so far even to say. If you do this today, If you be the son of God today, if you are the son of God even, you can rule and reign today with me. You don't have to starve. You don't have to go through this. You don't have to identify with man. You don't have to go through any sort of humiliation and be rejected by your people. No one's going to reject you. If you jump off and the angels come, it'll be a marvelous thing. Just do it. Just give in. And of course, if you would have caved, it would undermine God's saving plan. How many know that all temptation virtually is a shortcut to glory? It's a shortcut. All those things were true. I mean, Jesus could have easily just turned the stones into bread, ate, cut the, cut the fast short, but he said, look, my father has thrusted me into temptation and called me into a fast, and I'm going to finish it for the sake of them. I am going to be worshipped one day. I am going to be fed by angels in a moment, which is what they did. They ministered to him. But I'm not going to do it prior to God's plan. I'm going to do it according to plan. I'm going to do it according to his plan. Philippians 2, 8-10 to says this, Christ Jesus who will... Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words what Mark is trying to say here is if Jesus is the king then he needs to demonstrate victory over Satan first. Guys, if you are going to overcome sin and if you're struggling with sin right now, you need to understand first that he established authority over the enemy who tempts everyone to sin. This is so important to our salvation, so important to our sanctification. Without this we're 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 going to lose. We're defeated. We're lost. And we'll perish for all of eternity. This is absolutely just as the baptism of Jesus was absolutely relevant to our walk and our salvation, the temptation of Jesus is as well. And as he is building, Mark is building upon his authority. He's saying, look, I'll refrain from the, the, all the, uh, the details because I want you to see one thing. He cuts the details short for one reason. He's saying, look at his authority. Look at his authority. Every single scene, look at his authority. Look at his authority for one reason. He is able to save. He is able to save you. He is worthy of our worship. No king ever. Adam, no. Abraham lied, right? Moses broke the rock, crushed the rock, tried to do that on his own will. He got angry. What did David do? Adultery? Murder? Jeremiah tried running away. Isaiah had a a faulty tongue. The Jews would have known clearly: there is no one like him. If there, nobody in history ever made it through a temptation with Satan like that. And how many know that this was just the first of many confrontations in the next three and a half years? In the garden. And it says in Hebrews 4.15, what does it say? At all points, Jesus was tempted. Isn't that interesting? At all points. That means, for you, that's encouraging. That means you can't say, I am more disgusting than that person because I have this thought, I'm tempted in this way. Jesus was tempted at all points, yet without sin, and he is our high priest. He, could, he suffered with us. He understood. He was tempted at all points just as we are, but yet he is the only one without sin. And that is supposed to be encouraging for everyone here. He fully identified with us in every way, yet he came out perfect. Because he needed to be the perfect substitution for our sin. Number two, as Jesus has authority over the power of sin. So if he defeated Satan, which is not the ultimate defeat, the ultimate defeat is when? At the cross. Actually, at the resurrection. It says in Colossians 2, he disarmed Satan, finally. Once and for all. But this was the first of many confrontations and it was important to know that it was the first of many and that's what Mark wants you to know. He doesn't give the details because he wants you to know this is the first of many but he was victorious here and he will continue to be victorious all the way through the cross and the resurrection for everybody's victory over sin. And now he has the absolute right to waltz into any room on the planet and declare this. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the good news of of God or the gospel of God and saying this, the time is fulfilled. I'm here. Everything, everything, all what the prophets were pointing to was me in this moment and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He can speak that way because he has a complete authority over Satan and he will continue to do that and demonstrate that over when he's casting out demons, which we'll get to next week. He has absolute authority over Satan and over sin. Now, I just want to back up in a sec. He says, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came to Galilee. Now, six months had passed now since Jesus was baptized. And in between there, if you're wanting to fill in the, what is called the harmony of the gospels, you can write again like in the margins and just kind of fill it in together and it'll give you a great understanding of who Jesus is. And this is what he did uh, during that time uh, here between his minist- uh, the baptism and his ministry. He... Uh, or after the baptism in the start of his ministry here in Mark, that he cleansed the temple in John 2, if you remember that. And the other thing he did was he met the Samaritan woman in John 4, and then he began the ministry. Now that's helpful. I'm not going to go into all the little details of that. Take me a little while. But I want you to keep getting the point of Mark. Not what's going on in John and anything else. I'm just kind of filling in to help you get a grasp of the life of Jesus throughout the gospel of Mark. But John says something really interesting. He says, I must decrease and he must increase. So he knew at one point he'd fall off the scene. And that's what was happening here. And Jesus honored his ministry. So he did his work in Judea. And that was in Jerusalem. He, he cleansed the temple. He, he, he went through Samaria. He visited uh, the woman at the well, and then he finally got made his way into the northern part, into Galilee, northern Israel. And really, what that was is it was in, is somewhat of a when he began his public. This is a key public ministry. He did some other things, obviously, but when he began his public ministry, when he said, "This, it, I am here. The king is here, and my kingdom is here, and I'm I'm coming to call you to repentance," that is important. Because it is a rebuke to Jerusalem. He didn't begin his ministry there. This was far away from the religious establishment. He was interested in finding not a Pharisee to follow him, right? But we'll see in a moment, just everyday people. People who were humble. People who were faithful, available, who were teachable. Then he... uh, And I want you to also notice, this is, there's a, there is so much in this, it's amazing. I, I, you know, I I probably had started off with eight pages of notes and had to condense it so much into one little thing, otherwise you'd be here forever. But we probably need to do like an after hours, I can fill it in. Just, it'd be great, it's just so good, so rich, so many things happening here. And just can every page, it just builds your faith in the Lord, builds your faith in the Lord. But I want you to notice something the way to build churches is preaching the gospel. Do you know that? Do you know that? I mean, I think I've said this before, I don't know if it was an ADS context or what. But we've, reduced, we, we've replaced preaching with a talk. We've replaced the pulpit with a table. Right? Haven't we? That, that's what's actually happening in evangelicalism today. The, the pastor gave a nice talk. What the heck is that? A nice talk. Talk doesn't change anybody's life preaching does. Calling people to repentance changes people's lives. And I'm not saying a table is going to change anybody, not change anybody's life, but it's just interesting. Watch the trends of evangelicalism and how it works, what is actually happening, because it, uh, talks are less offensive than preaching. To call it the, the, the pastor's table and his, his little stool, You know, it's it's less offensive. The pastor just kind of hung out with us and just was real conversational. I'm telling you what, Jesus didn't waltz in there and and was just kind of conversational with the people. He had absolute authority to call people to repentance because he defeated Satan and sin. He overcame temptation, and now he's able to call you out of temptation. No one else has that authority. No one. No one on the planet has that kind of authority. That would have been ringing in their ears, the Romans. No one has that kind of authority. Who is this? I, 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 tell me more. I'm, I'm, I'm in. Give me some popcorn or a fish. I, I, I'm interested. I, I want to see what happens next. Oh, you'll see what happens next. Because this next scene, you're involved now. You'll be involved. This whole thing is set up so that he can call you. And you get to be a part of his kingdom. That's amazing. Luke four fourteen to 30 says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, which he just conquered, I love how all the Gospels just put all these pieces together. And news about him spread throughout the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Short-lived, of course. And he came to Nazareth, literally in the same message, where he began to be brought up, or where he was brought up, and it was his custom to enter the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he stood up and read, and he read this. He read Isaiah 61. You guys remember that one. And the only read one, the one the first verse, Isaiah 61, and then he, he paused. He did not complete that prophecy because he will when he comes back as a lion. Why don't you just look at it for a second? I think it's important to look at that because this is what his ministry, this is what he virtually was preaching when he showed up on the scene. So look at Isaiah 61. This again was told 700 years prior to that scene. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is Jesus. It's about Jesus. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, and he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and then he leaves off in Luke 4, and the day of vengeance of our God. He did not come to bring judgment yet. He br- came to bring salvation. He came to save people from their sin. But mark his words. He's coming back to judge sin. He's coming back to judge everyone, including Christians. But there are two thrones. That you will go. That either one of us would go to when we die. The great white throne is the one you don't want to be before. That's the one where he says, "I never knew you." Depart from me, you who practice iniquity, according to Matthew seven, and they are th- thrown into the lake of fire, which was created for demons and the devil. The bema seat is what we all as Christians will stand before one day. And he will judge us based on our works and our words and what we've done, our motives. And they will all be laid bare one day. All, it's not just your words. It's not just what you do. But it's even your motives. Why you do things. That alone is just really convicting, right? But we'll stand before that judgment seat of Christ and he will not condemn you there. But he will judge you rightly. And then he'll say, come into my kingdom. Come in. And I, I love the illustration that Alistair Begg said one time when he was preaching. He's a great preacher with a Scottish accent. So he makes it better. From Cleveland, Ohio. And one of the things he says, uh, you know, they, they, you, always, you always wonder about that one guy you know, on the cross with Jesus and he, he just barely gets in, right? And and, and and he was going through this message about preaching grace, about how Jesus was incredibly gracious and 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 how he didn't even know that man didn't know the, the he he gets he tells us kind of this parable I guess of of how he would get into heaven and they they uh, he's about to be led in and this angel says, How did this guy get in? Who is this guy? And, and uh, he asked him, he's like, Do you know what justification is? Do you know what by grace alone, by faith alone? Do you know the five soul as a scripture? No, I, I, I don't know that. How did you get here again? You, you, you don't, wait, wait, what? Do you know what Jesus did? You know, his life, his ministry? Did you get a d- degree in theology? Nope. Then how did you get here? He calls another archangel. He calls Michael or Gabriel. I mean, he says, like, I, I need some help. I can't let this guy in. <laughs> I'll get in big trouble let this guy and then have to let him leave. And it's just too much work. So, so how did you get in? I'll tell you one reason why I got in because the man on the cross said I can come in. And you want that on the last day. You want the one on the cross victorious to say you can come in. Amen? I think we all want that. (laughs) And the only reason why he can do that and let you come in is because what he demonstrated in Mark chapter one, amen? He says this, he says that this is, it's interesting, he says in verse 14, this is the gospel of God. This is the gospel of God. You ever hear it that way? I mean, Paul says that in Romans 1, 1, he says that in Romans fifteen sixteen, and in 2 Corinthians 11, and 1 Thessalonians and then in 1 Peter, Peter says that, the gospel of God. What was he saying? Is this the gospel of Jesus? Of course it is. It's the good news of Jesus. But what does the gospel of God mean? It just means it's God's gospel. It's his good news. The way in which he says the only way that you could get in is through Jesus Christ. In other words, it's not the social gospel. It's not the psychological gospel. It's God's gospel. He determines the rules. It's his message. It's his message. It's not some sort of, you know, Paul was saying, I'm not coming to you with gimmicks. I'm not coming and doing some sort of acrobats out here, uh, uh, gymnastics, and I'm not some sort of guy who's going to, Try to please the crowd here. This is God's gospel. And you need to know that. That it's his message. And that's something that terrifies me every time I come up here. I'm like, Lord, this is is your message. (laughs) Uh, This is your good news. Far be it from me to distort it. Far be it from me to try to twist it so that man would like me better. See how stupid the charismatic chaos is? Or the market driven church? Come win a $500 gift card if you come. This is God's gospel. And God is serious, isn't He? We have time to laugh now. We we can laugh all we want now. I mean, you're not laughing when you're standing before the Lord, as a Christian or a non-Christian. It's a serious matter, and it's a sober moment. It's God's gospel. It's not my gospel. This isn't my pulpit. This is God's message. This is His message. This is what. He has called us to proclaim, and not to distort any part of it, but to get it right. One of the most terrifying things is, I I just, I can't get out of my head. John, make sure you get it right. Make sure that you understand this passage before you talk. Because people are listening. And Jesus could waltz on the scene and say, look, the time is now. And what he meant by that is a kairos moment. That's a Greek word for it, is, it's, it's, it's the opposite of chronos. It's chronology. That just means that chronology, or chronos is just the, you know, it's almost 12 right now. It's 1158. It's measuring time by how we measure time. The, the, the Romans measured a, a certain the sixth hour, the ninth hour, the twelfth hour. This is a. A different, Kairos is different. It's a season. It's like the the time is now. He came at this time. Not at 12 noon, but he came in this era. For such a time as this, Jesus came on the scene right now. And he's saying that in Ephesians 1, Paul said this, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, underline, that's Kairos, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens, things in the heavens and things on earth. And then Galatians 4, 4, he says, Paul says this, this that he said, but when the fullness of the time came, Kairos, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. They would know something's up. Something's up. They understood language. It's not Kronos, but Kairos. Something's happening. Something's in the air. And it's not, is Obama the Antichrist? Something's in the air. Something is shifting. Like a real shift. Not the bozos on TV saying, who's the next Antichrist? This is, this is, a, this is a real shift. This is an actual shift. You know, he always talks about shifting the atmosphere. Really? Well, I'll tell you what. The atmosphere shifted that moment. There's no doubt about that. When the king showed up, it was game over. It was, this is the time where he has the right to say, I'm here. Listen. But he also had not just the, the good news, listen. The good news actually incorporates repentance. It is not... Jesus loves you. Amen? Although that's a part of it. It's a part of it. But listen to his words. I want to train you to listen to the Lord's words, not some other person's. I don't care about the Bible says this or I think God said this to me. Certainly, I don't care what God said to you. But what does God actually say? when he arrives on the scene, he says this, the time is fulfilled. That should be like the huge warning. I mean, anytime red letters show up is good, but all the Bible is inspired. That's why it's certain times it's nice to read a, the Bible with not red letters because every word is inspired. Even the ands that are not red letter. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand and the kingdom is wherever the king is. If the king is there, the kingdom is, if the king is there, the kingdom is there. It's the king's domain. It's his rule and reign over people. And his rule and reign over people begins spiritually. Okay, there's three, three things. Spiritually, he rules and reigns over them. In other words, he has rule and reign over your sin. He just demonstrated that why he was able to do that. Because he overcame sin. Number, uh, the second part of that is he, he, he is over darkness and Satan, he destroyed him. And number two, he's the kingdom. He's he's gonna one day. And some people may disagree with this, but he's going to rule and reign in his millennial kingdom for a thousand years. And it's going to be an earthly kingdom. Because this is not an earthly kingdom. Anyone says that is ridiculous, in a way. Because I, I don't see. Look at the world. Just How about we all just take a moment for five minutes, we look up the, the latest news, and you tell me if Jesus is reigning earthly here today and Satan is bound up, like it says in Revelation 20. I don't think so. Okay, so we can move on to the third part. E- eternally, he rules eternally in the new heavens and the new earth, entirely away from the presence of sin. So this is what, you could say it this way. God has, Jesus demonstrated his power over sin by defeating Satan, right? And then when he comes into your life, he defeats sin in your life practically in a sense that he's broken the practice of sin in your life. You once practiced sin. You were dead. You were just dead in your transgressions. That means you were practicing sin and had no power over it. You were dead, no power over it, but you also just practiced it. You liked it. You loved it. You didn't know any better. And then one day he's going to deliver you, not just from the power, not just from the practice, but from the presence of sin. He's going to deliver you from the, pres- the very presence of sin. The only way that's going to happen is in the new heavens and the new earth. There will be no more presence of sin, not just in your own life, Because we have this struggle now, Romans 6, 7, 8, the struggle. But other people around you are also sinning. And the beauty about heaven is you no longer will sin in your mind, your heart, your will, and your emotions. But you won't ever have to deal with that from any other soul around you for all of eternity. Amen? So good, I can't wait for that to happen. I think you can't wait either. But this is what his, his message, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. How you're saved is by two ways. You believe and you repent. You might say, well, well repenting is works. It's not. It's changing your mind. Can you do that alone? No. Do you do it in partnership with God? No. Some churches will tell you that. It's not synergistic. It's not two powers happening at the same time at your salvation. It is one power. It's monergistic. There's only one power, only one energy happening at the, birth, at the salvation, at the new birth, and that's God's. That's the Holy Spirit's. Amen? Nobody wakes up saying, I think I want God unless a miracle happened. Unless a miracle happened. Romans 10, 9 does say, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But the regeneration has to happen first. That miracle has to happen first. When I was in my college dorm room at 18 years old, regeneration happened before I accepted Jesus as I read that tract that afternoon. Something, I don't know when, I I can't really tell you when that happened, but he rebirthed me. It was the second birth, John 3, 16, uh, Ezekiel 36. It was a new birth. Something miraculously happened, which caused me to be able to respond to him. Why do you think it's so hard? It's like talking to thick-headed people on the streets, right? You're just like, hey, come on, I mean, Don't you see this, how glorious this gospel is? I I don't think he's the son of God. I don't think. What? Ha! You're forgetting something. You're forgetting a very, very important element of the gospel. You don't need to get angry because of it. You don't need to yell. You don't need to manipulate. You don't need to come up with any gimmicks. Why? Because you're forgetting his miracle in their life. And frankly, you might have forgotten yours. It's his miracle. But you need to respond to him by faith, by believing, by confessing Jesus is Lord, and repenting from your sin. In other words, if you're still practicing sin in your life, like practicing i mean like when you practice sports like if you're in the olympics you're practicing running every day every day 3 miles 5 miles 6 miles you're every and thir- 13 14, well, how many 26 miles if you're if you're a marathoner that's crazy um <laughs> that you're pra- there's no way you could become that so when jesus sees the person and says uh, depart from me you who practice these, You're an Olympian of sin. You know sin so well. That's why you're not able to get in here. Do not be an Olympian of sin. But of righteousness. Of righteousness. Amen? That's how it works. You... When you get saved, it is a miracle. You, you want it. You love sin. And then you're realizing when you got saved, when regenerated, the Holy Spirit began to live in you. I don't want this anymore. I feel bad about it. I feel terrible about it. When you give in to sin, you're like, oh, why did I do that? Why did I give in to that? Why did I think that? Why did I say that? If you have if you don't feel that if you if you don't go through those emotions uh, you may not be saved. You may not be regenerated. Jesus demonstrated complete authority over sin so that he can give this kind of victory to others. That is the point of Mark 1. Romans 16, 20, this is amazing. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Mark 16, or 1, 16 to 20, this is the last part of it, and then we're done. But as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately, there's that word again, euthus in the Greek, they left, uh, left their nets and followed him, going on a little further. He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately, he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Now, I will say this, just to fill it in again, as we were saying, in the little margins, you can put John 1, to 42. This was not the first meeting, was it? When I was first reading the Bible in college, I was like, how does this all fit? I mean, did, 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 is this the first? I mean, because you know, you'd hear preachers say this, who obviously didn't do their homework, but you'd hear them say, like, man, they met Jesus. He was so wonderful. And boom, they just dropped their nets and followed him. Now, Mark wants you to understand that. That's the point. Mark wants you, know, he didn't fill in the gaps for a reason because he wants to say Jesus has full authority to call people and them for their only right response is to drop the nets and go, amen? It's, it's supposed to be fast-paced and condensed, full with power, that's Mark. But let's just look at this for a second. Th- let, let's look at John 1:35 to 42. I don't think we're doing anything illegal, okay? You might be thinking, well, you're not supposed to do this. Really? By what rule? But, okay, let's just look at this for a second, okay? So, John 1, 35 to 42, this is, they, they had already spent some time together, Now understand that when they met, John the Baptist was doing his ministry still. And that is important to understand. Six months later, now they meet again, and Jesus did the right thing. Then he can call them because John the Baptist's ministry was finally over. So John was standing with two of his disciples. Again, it just makes Jesus look so profound, so beautiful when you read these things because you're just like, he is that good. He's always thinking of things that we would never even think of, but yet it's for our salvation. Okay, so John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw, saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translates teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and s- come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, there they are, Simon Peter's brother. And he found his, fir- his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. He brought, him to, he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Peter. And then they most likely went their ways. For a time being, until now, they pick up, and as he, as he, Jesus, verse 16, was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea. And here, I, in the Sea of Galilee, it was interesting. It's, it's shaped like a harp, so Genesaret, which just uh, means harp, uh, the Sea of Tiberius, as the Romans would probably have called it. The Galilean Sea was 700 feet below sea level. And just a unique note here that is really important to know before you hear the call of Jesus on their lives is that they were a part of a very lucrative business, you might, have been, you might have heard it this way, that these guys were poor, uneducated fishermen, right? Do you remember in Acts 4.13, we were talking earlier, it was, I don't know, it was probably a year ago or so, <laughs> but Acts 4.13, they said, wow, they were impressed. They're like, these guys have been with Jesus, as they were referring to Peter, James, and John, and the disciples. And what they meant by that was saying, those guys have been with Jesus, and they're, uneducated or untrained. They were educated. And they were certainly trained by the Lord. What they were saying was they weren't formally trained. They weren't Pharisees. And those, those it's all about context. The ones who were saying that were Pharisees. They were the ones saying that. And that makes sense. And in this context, Mark is trying to point out that they had a very, thri- very thriving business. It was a big business, and there was the main meat in the Mediterranean. It wasn't burgers. It was fish, and they exported that all over the world from that lake, and it was, it was fascinating to know that these disciples were not uneducated, and they were not poor. Do you remember Peter? He owned a home, according to Luke four thirty eight in Capernaum. He owned a home. And they had, uh, and John, uh, later on, John was known by the high priest. They were well-known. They were influential. What does that mean? Does that mean if you're poor and uneducated, Jesus doesn't want you as a disciple? No, of course not. But Jesus chose them for a reason. Even unbeknownst to us. I don't know, but this is the truth of the matter. He did choose them uh, by his own volition. And they were certainly not qualified to do this. And it's interesting, too, that disciples usually sought their teachers. They weren't searching Jesus. Disciples always, for the most part, sought, sought their teachers. In this case, only the radical ones... Like uh, in 1 Kings 19, uh, the Elijah sought out Elisha. Only the radical teachers would go and search for his disciples. And that is important to know that. And, and uh, he was given into a certain kind of walking. He was a walking discipler, I guess you can say, rabbi. He walked and talked. He, he was in, it wasn't a classroom setting. Those, at those times, if you wanted to be a rabbi, or if you wanted to be under a rabbi, you had to apply to the school. You had to get in. You had to take certain tests. Yet, It was very difficult to get in in that time. And the profound the, uh, nature of this whole story is just that Jesus decided to pick them. Even though they didn't seek him. And isn't that true about Jesus that it is the Lord in John fifteen sixteen, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Jesus chooses us and that they would not only just be, not only follow him, it says, follow me, but I will also make you fishers of men. I will teach you not just to be a disciple, but also how to make other disciples. You remember Isaiah 55, five, some of you guys know that, Right? Let me just read it again. You will call a nation you do not know. A nation which know, knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he glorified you. Jesus is the only one that can call you. He is the only one with authority to call his people. That was referring to David, but really it was, it's, its ultimate fulfillment was in Christ that we have a right now and even in Matthew 28 says that I I have all authority and I give you this authority go and make disciples of all men. Now that might seem extremely shocking from a human perspective that they just left their nets immediately they left their nets and they followed him. From a human perspective sure. I mean they I mean even John and and his brother James, they left the father. I mean, they, the dad was probably like, there goes my business, you know. <laughs> okay. And I think Mark is trying to tell us here something. He's saying, look, these guys had a lucrative business. They weren't, some poor, they weren't just working at McDonald's. Chick-fil-A, it wasn't a blow-off job. This was a big industry. And they left their nets? Like, who does that? In, fa- in fact, even a greater question is, who could just call people to leave their lucrative business? Who could call people to leave their family? Who, who does that? Who just waltz right in there and just messes with people's lives like that? The King Jesus. The only one that is able to call you to quit your job The only one that is able to call you to leave brother, mother, sisters to join another family called the church. He's the only one that is able to call anyone because he has complete authority over all of our lives. Amen? He's the only one. They did it, Mark's trying to tell you, they did it immediately. many people are like, oh, we have to go through this come and see stage. And maybe it's like three years or four. And they're just kind of like testing it out. No, 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 no. I don't hear that in Mark. I hear the time has been fulfilled. Repent now. And be baptized. Join the family. Drop your nets. Follow me. He is worthy of your worship he is worthy of your yes he is worthy of everyone's yes listen to what one bible commentator says he says this they do not search for him jesus but he searches for them it is in their world that discipleship begins watch this when jesus as the, as god's son initiates human fellowship the encounter takes place not on his ground or even on the holy ground of the synagogue or temple, but on their ground, in the working world of boats, of nets, and labor from dawn till dusk, there is only one thing the fisherman can do, and that is to respond to the commanding word of Jesus, grounded solely in the authority of his person. If you remember that day when Jesus called you to come follow him, He's still asking you to do that. He's still asking you to follow him. He's still teaching you. He's still transforming you. He's still trying to help you to make disciples of men. Jesus defeated Satan in the wilderness. He declared victory over sin through the preaching of the gospel. That was clear. And now he demonstrates his power. Over the calling of disciples, of the calling of his disciples, by transforming them and calling them to do the same thing. In other words, what is he doing? He's asking you to drop your nets. He's the only one that can call you to do that. Not even I can do that. I can't call you to quit your job. And it's not even really about quitting your job. That's you're missing the point. It's not even. We're not even asking. That's we're, Jesus is not calling you later. But, well, I, sorry to the boss. <laughs> I, I, I was on Sunday morning. I was sitting in church, and Jesus has all authority, and He was baptized, and, and then He t- told me to quit this job. You're not going to be a good witness. That's not at all what He's saying. Mark is showing them that he has complete authority over every man's life, whoever lived and whoever will live. The only reason why they just, just, they left. They're like, you you are the Messiah. I'm following you. And that was hard for the father because he had to go and Hire some more hired servants, I suppose. He had great sons to, in this lucrative, amazing business, but it's costly to your family. It's costly, right? It's costly in so many different aspects of your life. So many implications. But I want you to respond to this call because he is worthy of your obedience this morning. You can no longer sit in your sin anymore. You can no longer just give some sort of excuse that just because, you know, everybody's doing it, I suppose, or everybody struggles somewhere. He's calling you to stop. And the reason why he's calling you to stop is because he has full authority over sin because he fully defeated temptation and Satan. He is worthy of our obedience because he has power over sin, power over Satan, He has power to call you. He has power to save you. He has power to transform you. And he has power to commission you. Every single one of you. I was just going to read a verse here and then a quote. But it says here, Ephesians 121. He is the Messiah, the King, the Ruler, the Power Dominion. That's Mark's point. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He has full authority. That is Mark's point over Satan, over sin, and power to call every human being on the planet to come follow him so that he may transform you and then teach you how to be a fisher of men. And that fisher of men, by the way, is from Jeremiah 16. They would have clearly saw and knew what Jesus was talking about. And I love this. He meets us where, he, where we're at. He uses an Old Testament verse, Jeremiah 16, which talks about the, the judgment. When, when God was saying, I'm, I'm going to raise up fishers of men, well, you know what he's saying? He said, I'm going to gather people and I'm going to judge them. Do you know what, that's, what disciple making is? we're gathering people for the harvest? We're in the great harvest. They would have understood that. Wait, in the past, when you gathered people, it was a prophetic image of you are going to judge people and separate the good fish from the bad. And now in the New Testament, you're calling us to gather people, to hear the good news, to be saved. But those also that we gather, some Will not be saved and they will be judged. Spurgeon says this when Christ calls all or calls us by his grace, we ought not to remember what we are, but we ought to also think of what he can make us. It did not seem a likely thing that a lowly fisherman would develop into apostles, did it? That men so handy with a net would be quite as much at home in preaching sermons and instructing converts. One would have said, how can these things be? You cannot make founders of churches out of peasants of Galilee. But that is exactly what Christ did. And when we are brought low in the sight of God by a sense of our own unworthiness, and I think that's all of us here, we may feel encouraged to follow Jesus because of what he can make of us. Oh, you who see in yourselves at a present, nothing that is desirable come from you and follow Christ for the sake of what he can make of you. Do you not hear his sweet voice calling you and saying, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Now understand if you go your own way with your own net, you'll make nothing of it. And the Lord promises you no help in it. The Lord direct, Lord's directions make himself our leader and example. It is follow me, follow me, preach my gospel, preach what I preach, teach what I taught and keep to that with that blessed servility which becomes one whose ambition it is to be a copyist and never to be an original, but copy Christ even in jots and tittles. Do this and he will make you fishers of men. But if you do not do this, you will fish in vain. You'll fish in vain. And I'm reminded of Paul when he said in 2 Timothy 2, 2, just, if you're a disciple of Jesus, spend the rest of your life passing it down to what it says is faithful and able people. Or in other words, those with character and those with gifting. Spend the rest of your life fishing for men. I'll tell you, nine years ago when we planted the church, it's always amazing to me when God just said, come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And how true that really was from the youth ministry that I came from and a few trickled on from there to this church and started with nothing. And I'm amazed how God said that he would build his church. He would do it. Based on what? Me? No. Based on the rock of truth that Peter confessed, even here in the middle of Mark, you are the son of God. In other words, this whole church was built on the pure seed of the gospel. And the whole church at large was built out of the purity of what Jesus did in the temptation. And the reason why we have a beautiful church today, the reason why your salvation is genuine is because Jesus defeated Satan. He defeated sin. And he is able to call you into transformation. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Hebrews 4.15, you are the high priest. You went through all what we went through but yet you did not sin. You did not sin. You're perfectly victorious. You are the son of God that Mark proclaims here 2,000 years ago to the Roman readers. And we get to hear these words and see what you wrote is true that you are the one that was spoken of Isaiah and Malachi. You are the glorious one who is affirmed by the Father, the creator of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1. You are the Spirit, the, the, you are affirmed by the Spirit, the one who came on Samson and the one who came on Elijah, the one who came on John to declare your coming. You are affirmed by the two other members of the Trinity. You came out of the waters of baptism after you identified with us to fulfill all righteousness. And then you were thrusted into a very lonely desert. We're to remember every time we go into these trials and temptations and we just don't understand what in the world's going on, that the Spirit of the living God led you there. And to be reminded that the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings overcame Satan in that place of trial so that you can overcome in the power of the Spirit, in the direction of the Father. And he overcame this sin and he can call people to repentance and he can... He could call you today to repent and believe. He has authority to do that, to stare you in your face and say, you need to repent and believe. Enough's enough with the sin. Enough's enough with the practice of it. Become one who practices righteousness. And the only way to do that is through the miracle of regeneration and to plead with God to save you. And that's why he came to do just that. to save you from your sin as it says in the scriptures to disobey your parents to cheat on tests to lie even white lies half truths to stare a little longer than you should he come to forgive you from all of that sin there's not one sin on the planet that he cannot forgive you from And when you come to him, all of your sins will be erased. And as far as the east is from the west, your sin is far from him. And he's the only opinion that matters. And then he calls you to become his disciple. And to follow him, to become not isolated believer, but a part of it would Peter and James and John and Andrew. Calling you to a church is what he did. Even then in that scene, he said, now I'm making my church. And this is a church that you can belong to, a family you can belong to, to encourage each other to these passages when you're low and when you're defeated, to be encouraged to run to the throne room of grace again and again and again with confidence. To come into the Father's presence and say, I just can't do this. This sin is too heavy. It's too heavy. I need your help. And because of what Jesus did in the temptation, He is able to help you overcome the sin of sins in your life. Rebellion and pride, lust and envy, greed and anger, whatever it might be. Thank you, Father, for doing that. Thank you for sending Jesus to do that as their only hope out of this world into heaven. Help us to walk with you, but also hear the words that you're going to make us fishers of men you're going to where, where mark drops off in 16 it just sort of drops off and and then all the book of acts there they're able to see how you have made them fishers of men do the same with us give us boldness to proclaim your word to our neighbors and the nation's Help us to articulate the gospel in a way that relies on your spirit. It relies on you. Not our own strength, but pointing people back to Jesus in the scriptures. To allow them to see how beautiful and wonderful you are in one chapter of the Bible. Help us to do that. We need you. Again and again. That's why we meet. That's why we come to gather with believers, to hear your word, to worship you in Jesus' name. I want you to stand to your feet. I want you to know four things this morning, okay? I want you to go home with four things. I want you to go home with that he is able to one, forgive your sin, no matter how horrific it is in your life. Number two, I want you to see that he is able to help you overcome that sin and obstacle in your life. By Hebrews two, twelve two, by looking at him. Three, I, I want you to see that he is able to transform you from the inside out. That mark this day you will be different next year. In thought and in action and in word. And number four, he is able to help you make disciples. You might be like, man, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to share the gospel. I just, I'm usually the guy praying and watching somebody else do it. Or when I do it, I'm just so inadequate, I don't even know how to do it. In this season, you will see how to do that in the gospel of Mark. Young and old. Whether you're 12 or 72, you will be able to make disciples because that is what Jesus called you to himself and how to make disciples. How to, to be a disciple first, consume yourself with that and that call. But also, equally, you need to understand that he's not going to let you sit. Not going to let you sit. And what amazing privilege that has been in this church to go to Sweden, to go to Colombia, to go to Japan, to go to Belgium, to go to Germany, to go to Ecuador, to go to Uruguay, to different places in the world. To say yes to him, to the nations, but also to go to the different streets of Oviedo, Don't forget that, church. Let's not become a church that just comes and learns. But we're ones that do this stuff. We want to do it in in as imperfect as we are. And Jesus is okay with that. Because he came to Andrew and Peter and James and John just as they were. And that's the encouraging thing for everybody in this room. Is he made them into bold witnesses. The key word is made. And that's what he's going to make of you. Amen? Let's worship him. If you need prayer,